My parents made me take music lessons. Can you hear the bitterness in my voice? Just so I don't get angry letters, if you happen to be a young person or a child who's watching right now, either in the room or online, and say hello to all of our online folks, uh, if your parents are actually picking up the tab for you to get music lessons, you should be eternally grateful, and you should actually practice every single day so that you don't end up bitter like I am because I put a lot of time into it and I can't play hardly anything. So that's to get myself off the hook. Now back to my bitterness. My parents made me take music lessons. 30 minutes a day, Practicing seemed like an eternity when you're 12 years old and all your buddies are playing hockey at the rink across the street. I'm grateful now, still a little bitter to be honest. Mrs. Kipfer was my first piano teacher. She was amazing. If I did good, she put a gold star in my music book. Then my parents sent me to a convent. Just so we're clear, it was for music lessons, okay? All right, stick with me, 1115. I am going to say this about my music lessons at St. Michael's Academy. I've met some sweet nuns in my ministry. Sister Jo Jelowitz and her wooden ruler was not in the nice category. I'm just saying, okay? And then there was Miss Marshall. Miss Marshall tried to teach me the cello. It didn't work. I'm still having anxiety because of that instrument that's sitting right over there. I feel like it's staring over my shoulder. Do you have any idea what elementary school kids, hockey players do to a kid who has to carry a cello to school? It's a good thing it doubles as a weapon. Okay, so cello was a no-go, so I switched to violin, which was worse. And my music teacher, Miss Marshall, was terrifying. Smoked like a chimney, talked like she was from the Bronx, and she freaked me out. I would go into this dungeon of a basement of hers to take violin lessons, and she'd be waiting for me. All right, Grant, play your scales and play them right. Yes, ma'am. Yes, okay, freaking out. The grand total of my musical endeavors is summarized in three piano progressions. That's what I can play. Six guitar chords, a little bit of singing, and no cello or violin. Thank you, Jesus. So the name that we've got for this week is actually a challenge for me because God says we are his instruments. We have been named... His instruments. In the first five weeks of this series, we've been laying down old names. Liar, broken, convict, alone, unloved. And we've been exchanging them every week for new names that God wants to give to us. New creation, overcomer, beloved, ambassadors of reconciliation. And last week, a brand new name that we don't even know yet, but God has promised for us one day in the future. But for this week, you have been named God's Instruments, And because we're talking about instruments, we're going to use some musical terms, even though I want to remind you, if you look at the definition of instruments in Scripture, it also includes weapons, surgical tools, household items, as well as those of the musical variety. But sticking with that musical theme today, do you recognize that God has actually gifted you as an actual instrument? I mean, you've got percussion built in. It can work all over the place, keeping rhythm. You've got a wind instrument inside of your chest that allows you to push air over top of strings. If you don't know what those are, they're called vocal cords. And all of this together was designed to praise God. You are an instrument. I did a little bit of musical theater growing up. And I I loved when they would begin the the evening because there would be this amazing overture. The, the, The orchestra down in the pit would begin to play musical highlights of the show that people were invited into. 
As we talk about that, the overture, I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, who's going to set the stage. He's going to give us some musical highlights that are going to walk us through and lead us to a conclusion that we are God's instruments. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. As a willing instrument in God's hand, I actually get to choose what kind of instrument I'm going to be. I can be a gorgeous guitar or a nauseating accordion. I get to pick. My musical preferences just showed up, okay? Paul's saying you actually have a choice. Instrument of wickedness, instrument of righteousness. You get to choose what kind of instrument, what kind of song you're going to allow God to play through you this coming week. The musical icon Bob Dylan put it this way. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And Paul would say, so choose wisely. As an instrument of righteousness in this little tiny passage here, I find four characteristics of God's instruments. I wrote them out this way. God's instruments are actually to be in submission. Don't be afraid of that word. You can be in submission to someone if you know they absolutely love you and are for you. To be in mutual submission between a husband and a wife is an absolutely beautiful place to be. And in this scripture, God says, I want my instruments to be in submission. That's why he says, rather offer yourselves. You have another opportunity. You can offer yourself to the spiritual enemy of your soul, or you can offer yourself in submission to God. And as an instrument of God, we recognize first and foremost who the conductor of the orchestra is, and that's not us. So we take a knee willingly before the King of Kings. We allow his plan and his purpose to flow through our lives. God's instruments are to be in submission. Secondly, they're to be in sync. The Bible says, rather offer yourselves to God, which means we are supposed to be in sync with the Holy Spirit, which is why the Bible says, since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit, which means when the Spirit of God says, it's time to pick up the pace, children of mine. Let's go. Start moving. Move in the right direction. I need you to open up another level inside of your heart, and we're going to move a little quicker. And then sometimes God says, I need you just to slow down and take a breath and rest easy. Can you imagine what would happen if the worship team just decided to all play at their own tempo? I mean, if Aaron just said, I'm going to do a 3-4 Western kind of a thing, and Randy's just like, no, I'm going to go with the jazz. We're going to do kind of a cut tempo. And Michelle just like sawed away on the cello because she could. It would be an absolute nightmare. No, if you listen to them, they're always trying to find the beat and the rhythm, just like we have to sync our lives with the purpose and plan that God created as he conducts the affairs of the world. Number three, God's instruments need to be in tune. Miss Marshall had both the blessing and the curse of perfect pitch. You could walk up to Daphne Marshall and say, can you give me a G? And she would just like, boo, whatever it was, and nailed it every single time. She had perfect pitch. It was a blessing 
because she could always tell when something was out of tune. It was also a curse because it drove her crazy. On more than one occasion, she's like, who's playing that note? That's off. You flat, change it. Scared me to death. (laughs) Our heart has to be in tune with the heart of God. We've got to resonate with his love, hope, and truth. Musical instruments have always fascinated me because, and you should try this sometime. You got a friend that's got a guitar. Uh, On the guitar is an E string. And you can make that E string actually play an E without ever touching the guitar. If you can approach the guitar and hum an E over top of an E string, you'll begin to notice something. That string, if you keep humming long enough, will begin to vibrate and resonate on the note because that's exactly what it's tuned to. So it is with God. He hums the note of our purpose. And if we're listening, we begin to carry that note. We begin to resonate with the note of his will day in and day out. Here's another one. God's instruments are in freedom. The Bible actually says we're not under law anymore. We're not no longer slaves to fear or sin. No, we are under grace, which makes us child of God. I could hear you backstage singing, which was pretty incredible. When you're under grace, you turn towards God. You reject wickedness and the opportunity to be that kind of instrument, and instead you make a decision to follow Jesus because you know you're going to have to serve Somebody, Can I add one more that I, I didn't put in the outline, but it occurred to me earlier this morning? God's instruments need to be in hand. When I was a, a kid playing the violin, I used to, you know, set my instrument down and I would open up the case and never once did that violin just sit up and start playing itself. Never once. I wished it would have. <laughs> it never did. No, I actually had to take it in hand. I needed to run the bow in the right direction. I needed to to finger the keyboard in in the right scale so that it could actually line itself up so that music could actually come up. And I'm not exactly sure you could call it music, but I gave it my best shot just the same way. God's instruments need to willingly place themselves in the hand of a God who loves them so that his song gets played, not ours. Let's keep going looking at, at another movement of God's symphony and the book of 2 Timothy, Pastor Paul's talking to his protege. He's got this young pastor named Timothy. And in three different musical movements, he actually lays some wisdom out for his protege. Let's start with the prelude. Before Paul gets down to the, the heart of the matter, and before he gets to the main section of his pastoral opus, his concerto, he lays some wisdom in front of Timothy. Every one of us should pay attention to this. Here's what he tells him Hey, young pastor, stop fighting. Arguing gets you nowhere. Stop wasting your time. I will say that to you. Stop fighting. Stop wasting your time. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you changed anyone with a Facebook argument? Come on. The best you ever got was somebody who wrote with no capitalization. Well, that's a good point. That's the best you ever got. You've never changed anyone's heart or mind in an argument like that. Paul has the audacity to say, you want to know what those arguments are? They're stupid and foolish. That's pretty strong words, right? He's like, stop wasting your time arguing with people that aren't going to change. Paul calls them stupid and foolish. Let me tell you what puts an argument in the stupid foolish category. It's when it's all full of your opinion and there's no mention of eternity. You're wasting your time. I thought three people would say amen. Amen. That's six. Okay, we'll keep going. Let's keep moving. 
Paul says not only should you stop arguing, but start wielding the word with skill. Paul says, I want you to use the word, not as an instrument of destruction. No, I need you to use the word as a surgical scalpel on your own soul. That's why he says, study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I learned that verse in the King James. It's just stuck in there. And some of you are just like, but Grant, but Grant, the word says that we're supposed to admonish one another. And that's what I'm doing. I'm admonishing people. It does say that. It says to do it gently, not digitally. It also, you know, I was going to leave this section out. I think I'm going to put it in for the 1115 crowd. It says we are to admonish each other gently, not digitally. It also says that while you're trying to provide correction for other people, you need to guard your heart because when you get so convinced you're right, that's pride. And the Bible says pride comes before a fall. Then Paul circles back again. I mean, he's just getting warmed up. He says, not only do I want you to stop arguing and use the word correctly, but I want you to stop talking about meaningless issues. Boy, that'll preach in this culture, won't it? Just stop talking about meaningless issues. It loops back to stupid and foolish arguments. I have a question for you. What word did you share more last week? COVID or Jesus? Just a gut check. Now let's be clear. There's nothing wrong with talking about the topic of COVID. Believe me, I'm going to talk about it all the time. But we need to make sure always that our conversations reflect our heart's greatest passion, that we are singing the song of Jesus over top of every other cultural, practical, and real issue that's actually going on in the world. Both topics matter, but let's make sure we're keeping the most meaningful topic at the top of the priority list. Can somebody say amen? I mean, by the way, the only issues of eternal value, according to the Bible, are people in God's word. We need to take that into account. That's just a warm-up. And then Paul begins to write what I call the interlude. In between the prelude and the postlude is this thing called the interlude. Listen to this. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. Can I rephrase that for you? The Lord knows those he has named. You have been called and you have been named goes on and says, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. There's that decision again, instrument of wickedness, instrument of righteousness. And then verse 20, in a large house, there are articles, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. Two possible responses to those verses. Response number one, I have got to be a gold cup. Silver at the bare minimum. I mean, seriously, have you seen all the stuff that I've been doing for Jesus lately? This is fantastic. I've got to be in the gold cup rank. I would encourage you again to remember, the Bible says pride comes before a fall. And if a cup falls, what happens? It breaks. Others read the scripture and go, oh, gee, I'm a mop bucket. Or maybe even a slop bucket. 
If that was your response with as much love and gentleness as I can say, can I admonish you? Be very, very, very careful how you talk about God's creation because you were fearfully and wonderfully made. God architected you in your mother's womb for a very specific purpose. He knows you, he's named you. Don't talk trash about one of God's children. I would be so bold as to say that both the answers, the high answer and the low answer, are both sinful. And I want you to look closer at the text. Often people look at this and go, well, I guess God just assigned me to be a a common cup. I'm a red solo cup, disposable at at the end of the table. That's wrong according to Scripture. This is not an assigning of worth. God's not saying some of you are just mop buckets, sorry. This is not an assigning of worth, it's an invitation. Do you see what Scripture says? Paul writes, those who cleanse themselves. In other words, we've been talking about the spiritual practice of confession. This is how we cleanse ourselves through confession. I come to God and say, God, here were the moments when I know I fell short. Here are the moments when my attitude got the best of me. Here are the moments when my mouth got me in trouble. God, I want to confess them to you because I recognize what they are. They're actually sin. But now that I have confessed that reality to you, I want to turn it over and I'm going to confess truth because you said, the God of the universe said over me that if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Do you see how powerful confession is? The Bible says those who cleanse themselves, in other words, those who choose to be bathed in God's grace will become instruments for God's special purposes, made holy and useful for the master. Here's the detention for some of us, though. We just don't want to go through the cleansing. We don't like it when God convicts us of something. And so what do we do? We just settle for a common life. Here's what Paul's saying. Welcome the cleansing of God. Welcome the refining of God. Welcome the cleaning process that God goes through when he says, I will wash you as white as snow. Don't settle for the common when God offers you a special purpose. He's actually saying, you might see yourself as common, but you're not. You've been named with a special purpose. Embrace the name. Find the purpose. Welcome the cleansing. Be an instrument of righteousness. I think Bob Goff says it so well. He says, God doesn't break things so he can fix them. He fixes broken things so he can use them. Let me say that again. God doesn't break things so he can fix them. He fixes broken things so he can use them. God named you as his special instrument. Huguette Clark was a teenager and her parents gave her a violin hoping that if she had a violin, she would actually learn how to play it. Here was the problem. Huguette Clark liked the violin about as much as Grant Fishbook did when he was 12. So she took the violin that her parents bought for her, threw it in the back of a closet. It stayed there for decades. It got moved between several different homes and always ended up in the back of the closet, neglected, never seeing the light of day. Until one day after she died, someone located the violin, looked inside of the sound hole that is carved into the violin and saw a name inscribed inside, Stradivarius. That violin was taken to be appraised. It was worth over $10 million. 
Think about that for a second. All of that worth, all of that craftsmanship, and it never saw the light of day. That priceless instrument was neglected in the dark for decades. God never wants that to happen to you. You may even pull away and say, but God, I don't want you to play your song through me. God will continue to pursue and press in because he wants you to live a life worthy of the name by which you have been called. So I grew up in church. I've I've told you that multiple times. When you grow up in church, a lot of things that are actually beautiful and classic become cliches. Some of you have experienced this. Maybe you grew up in a home and there was um, the token Christian poster with the poem Footprints on it right? And you saw it, and you read it the first time, and you went, oh, that's kind of cool, and then if you have never seen the poem Footprints, you should check it out sometime. It's actually very encouraging, but it seemed like to me at the Baptist Church in Brandon, Manitoba, every time that there was a guest speaker coming through, the guy would always ultimately end up saying the poem that I'm about to read to you, and I got so familiar with it that it literally meant nothing to me until this past week when I saw that we were going to be talking about God's instruments and I kept coming back to this thing because it was no longer cliche. It was perfect. Well, it was battered and scarred and the auctioneer thought that it was hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good people, he cried. Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar, do I hear two, two dollars? Who will make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going, going for three. But no, from the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. And then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played out a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. And the music ceased and the auctioneer said with a voice that was quiet and low. Now what am I bid for this old violin? And he held it up with its bow. One thousand, one thousand, do I hear two? Two thousand, who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. And the audience cheered, but some of them cried, we just don't understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, it was the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with his life out of tune, all battered and bruised with hardship, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and almost gone. But the master comes. And the foolish crowd never can quite understand that the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by one touch of the master's hand. You are his instrument. You have been named and called to serve his purpose for his glory. And we're getting close to having to wrap up. Paul challenges us to submit ourselves to the master. Why? So that the song of Jesus pours out of us every day, every moment. 
Paul does the prelude and then he does this interlude and then when he comes to the end, he wraps it up with the postlude. He throws a little bit more wisdom on the table for Pastor Timothy. Boy, this stuff is good. Timothy, before I let you go, here's what I need you to, to hear. Christ the King, before I let you go, here's what I need you to hear. Paul says, run towards righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Run towards it, not away. When you run towards righteousness, faith, love, and peace, you're choosing to be an instrument of righteousness, not an instrument of wickedness. And when we make that decision to run towards righteousness, faith, love, and peace, a melody that consists of truly living, deep faith, unbridled love, and dominating peace, it just invades everything. It fills all the space around us. And then as if Paul can't let it go, he comes back again and says, one more time, run away from stupid arguments. Just knock it off. I want to make sure we understand this. That doesn't mean to avoid healthy conflict or tough topics. If you hang out here, you'll know we're not afraid of hard topics. We actually believe healthy conflict is a part of being a part of a family. That's why a couple of weeks ago we talked about the name ambassadors of reconciliation, people who can bring two diametrically opposed people together with the common link of Jesus. Don't get me wrong, there were some battles you were meant to fight But do it God's way, with God's tone, in sync and in tune with the God that you serve, the God that holds you as a precious instrument and allows his song to press through you. If you're going to run away from stupid arguments, you should probably have an alternative. I love what Paul says. Be kind, patient, and don't get bitter. Let me say that again. Be kind, patient, and don't get bitter. I'll say it again and then someone can say amen with me because I think it's just good Bible. Be kind, be patient, and don't get bitter. Let's try one more time because I think we're going to need it sometime Monday morning. Be kind, be patient, and don't get bitter. If you're not going to get bitter, then you should probably be hopeful. Can I tell you about a day that's coming? A day when, if you were here last week, you're going to get a white stone, which is a symbol of acquittal and admittance, and God's going to write a brand new name across you, and you're going to be able to identify him. I believe on that very same day, the entire orchestra of God's instruments are going to gather to sing for his glory. Here's the good news. If you can't sing one day you're going to be able to. If you can't sing now, one day you will be the voice. God's going to bless you with clarity. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Right now, God's got us covered. It doesn't say make a beautiful song. It says make a beautiful noise. That's for everybody. It doesn't matter how awful you sound. It just is beautiful to God when you open your mouth and you use his instrument. When my kids used to come to me and say, Daddy, can I sing you a song? I never judged the tonality or intonation of their presentation. I just loved the fact that my little girl or my boy were singing to me. Sing anything you want to. Make up your own song. God is a father. He loves to hear from you. His song. If you can't play now, be encouraged. One day you're going to be able to play better than Eric Clapton. You're just going to lay down guitar riffs and it's going to be effortless for you. 
One day, all of the instruments will come together with Jesus in the center as the conductor, and what will be played in that moment will satisfy you for the rest of eternity. One of the good things about going to music lessons at the convent, St. Michael's Academy, is that along the hallways, the nuns had actually handwritten out classic prayers, prayers of powerful people. The one that hung right across from Sister Joe's piano room is eternally etched in my mind because I prayed it more than a few times before I went into what I believed was the dungeon of piano doom and the little nun with the ruler. Hanging outside of her piano studio were these beautiful words. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Oh, divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as much as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. And all of God's instruments agreed together and said, God gave you a song and an instrument. Don't be shy, use it. I know there are some people that are just like, I I don't know. Can, Can I tell you something? The world needs to hear the song of the people of God now. All the other songs that are out there are freaking them out and scaring them to death. But when God's people come together and we sing in tune, in sync as an instrument of righteousness, God begins to communicate a different kind of truth to the world around us. And I know there are some of you who are just like, I, I don't sing. Maybe you should try. Can I talk to the men in the room for just a minute? It's like, come on, Grant, like, I don't do that. I'm not expressive when I worship. So I stand with my hands in my pockets and I don't move my mouth. Are you really not expressive? Apparently Sunday afternoons at five o'clock, you can get really, really expressive. When you paint your face blue and your head green and you yell at a piece of electronics like your voice actually matters to the people on the field. Apparently you can get pretty fired up about a group of guys with tight pants and helmets on, but then the king of kings shows up and you're like, "Mm, I don't think so. Thank you, ladies, for saying amen. They're just like, come on. Gentlemen, can I tell you something? Your children are learning from you how and what to worship. I love football, but I love Jesus more. And if I can't actually worship him with everything in the instrument that he gave me, then I'm completely missing the purpose of my life. Ladies, I don't know how you get this so easily, but you just seem to do it. Thank you for your example. I so appreciate my sisters. 
But gentlemen, it's time for us to put some of this stuff aside and actually step into the fact that God made you an instrument and he wants you to use that instrument for his honor and his glory and to model for your children what real worship looks like, how it acts, how it feels.